Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Killings of unarmed civilians by state forces. Police repression of mass protests nationwide. A president openly threatening military force against rebelling civilians. If what is happening in the U.S. were instead taking place somewhere else, Washington and its allies could well have been calling for sanctions or even military force. Well, now the families of black victims of U.S. state violence are urging a different kind of international intervention. In an open letter, the families urge the UN Human Rights Council to open an investigation of what they call, quote, the unfolding grave human rights crisis in the US. The families say that recent police killings of unarmed black people, as well as the subsequent police use of force and repression of protests, violate US obligations under international law. They urged the UN to open an independent inquiry into the killings and subsequent crackdowns on the protests. The letter's signatories include relatives of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Philando Castile, and Michael Brown, as well as more than 600 rights groups led by the ACLU and the U.S. Human Rights Network. The letter was co-drafted by my guest today. Gay McDougall is a former member of the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination and was also the UN's first independent expert on minority issues. In South Africa, she helped provide legal support to anti-apartheid activists and later served on South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission, which organized the country's first non-racial elections. Professor McDougall is now a distinguished scholar in residence at the Leitner Center on International Law and Justice at Fordham University Law School. Professor McDougall, welcome to Pushback. What are you calling for in this letter? Well, uh, the call is uh, for the uh, UN Human Rights Council, which is uh, uh, one of the top uh, human rights bodies of the United Nations, uh, to take the matter up uh, in a special session, uh, which is a unique uh, you know, forum. Uh, that's used very rarely. Um, we are asking them to review, in essence, the uh, degree to which uh, the situation in the United States, uh, both the background situation, which is endemic racism, as well as uh, the police murders and the administration's response to the police uh, murders and the protests. So we're asking them to look at all of those and consider the degree to which the U.S. Uh, has violated its obligations under international human rights law with respect to those issues. Um, and more specifically, the U.S. has voluntarily signed on to ratify uh, the uh, International Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and the uh, Covenant on um, Against Torture. So these are all relevant uh, in the current situation. And uh, so we want them to consider uh, those issues and to come to a determination about how they might best respond. And as a former member of the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination and as a legal scholar, what is your opinion on the U.S. level of compliance right now with international law when it comes well, to these I think, issues? 
I think it's very poor. Uh, I think it's been poor in general, certainly with respect to policing in the U.S. Um, it has obviously uh, been poor with respect to, uh, you know, the racism in all of the institutions that are important in sustaining our life and our futures um, in this country. Uh, so, uh, and I, I would also consider that the uh, way in which uh, the uh, police very callously, uh, you know, executed uh, George Floyd uh, on national television uh, could, could be considered torture. How so? Well, I think that it uh, meets uh, as much as it could uh, the definition of torture in the uh, convention. Um, and, you know, it's also uh, very clear that with respect to the, uh, uh, to the racism uh, convention, uh, it, it, it sort of was clearly coming from a place of hatred um, and uh, racial divisions. Um, and that is its own violation under the uh, Convention on Racial Discrimination. And you worked extensively in South Africa uh, at the end of the apartheid era. Based on your experience there, are there any lessons that we can draw from South Africa's experience in dealing with its legacy of systemic racism that we can learn for the U.S. and apply at home? Well, I mean, the first one that I would apply is that uh, people don't um, uh, abide uh, by having uh, a foot on their neck forever. Uh, that uh, they uh, take to the streets and they take to finding ways to sabotage government if government is not representative of their uh, issues, their wishes, and their rights. Uh, no group of people stands for that forever. And in terms of things like a, a truth and justice commission, uh, a reconciliation commission, akin to what we saw in South Africa. Do you think that model could be applied here? Well, perhaps. But uh, personally, I think we're a long way off from that. Uh, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission took place uh, after the victory had been won. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not something that, it's, it's actually not an institution that leads to the uh, solving of these problems, uh, but um, rather is uh, a part of what we call transitional justice. It happens afterwards in the hope that it will bring the country back together, but after the victory. So let's say that the UN Human Rights Council took up the case of the US what specific steps could be done there? How would that process unfold? Well, what we are, well, first of all, there would be a, a full debate <clears throat> by the 47 
member uh, governments, uh, state members of the uh, council. Uh, and hopefully they would allow um, uh, NGOs, other experts to come in and make some statements and guide them on uh, the facts on the ground, if you will. Um, then what we're asking is that the, uh, there be a full commission of inquiry established uh, that will look more deeply into uh, the facts and the issues and hopefully come up with uh, conclusions <clears throat> and uh, recommendations. And based on your experience at the UN, when the Human Rights Council takes up abuses in other countries, does it lead to meaningful changes? Can something positive be accomplished from this process, from this UN process? Well, certainly something positive can be accomplished. And one of the things is that it, 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 it uh, gives support, meaningful support, to those forces within the country uh, who are fighting for uh, the observance of human rights. It can create important pressure, international pressure, uh, on uh, the offending government. You know, one of the things that has uh, sort of driven me in my career is having watched and participated somewhat <laughs> Uh, in South Africa, moving from apartheid all the way over to uh, a new uh, uh, democratic uh, government. And to see how international pressure applied through the UN and other multilateral forums uh, was critical in helping that to occur. And so I've seen it work. Uh, in the past. I saw it work in terms of Namibia. I saw it work in terms of what we now call Zimbabwe. I think it's quite possible. Since you mentioned South Africa, le let me ask you about a argument that I'm seeing increasingly made, which is that we cannot solve the systemic racism in this country without tackling economic injustice as well. Uh, the, the, you know, one lesson for some people from South Africa is that the end of apartheid did not really fully end the apartheid system because the economic structures of apartheid remained in place. And just recently, Michelle Alexander wrote a piece in the New York Times where she said, achieving economic justice requires we work for racial justice and vice versa. There's no way around it. I'm wondering, especially based on the experience of South Africa, your thoughts on this question. Well, I think it's absolutely the case that there's no way around it. Uh, that uh, uh, South Africa faced uh, the choice of, a, if you will, a, a one-step revolution or uh, where only part of the issues are dealt with. Um, you know, uh, or all of the issues are dealt with are two stage where you get some dealt with here, some dealt with there. And I don't have to say, you know, which was the final uh, resulting process. Uh, but they are still fighting for 
uh, economic uh, justice. And this is a very real thing in South Africa. I mean, you know, you've got, all you have to do is go and see the, uh, the uh, townships, uh, see the squatter camps, and you see um, how little uh, has changed. So there's a change, yes, okay. Uh, but um, for those people who have never been out, able to get out of the townships, out of the squatter camps, et cetera, uh, they don't see it. Um, and, you know, in terms of our own con country, I was around and sort of involved in the civil rights uh, movement. And I remember when we got to the point of uh, a decision about a one step or a two step, shall we insist on getting it all? And all then also meant economic uh, rights. Uh, this wasn't a a new call that, or shall we take the political, uh, you know, rights now, and then uh, through that, hopefully, would be able to uh, achieve the economic equality uh, that uh, is demanded, really necessary, in order to get racial ju uh, justice. Um, and unfortunately, uh, we had to settle for the uh, political uh, rights, civil and political rights, uh, with the hope that we could get uh, economic rights um, in the future. And economic rights, just, you know, let me just uh, remind you, means uh, the right to have good housing, the right to have, uh, you know, nourishing food, the right to have uh, good health care. So when a pandemic occurs like COVID-19, you know, black people, brown people are not dying at a uh, rate that uh, is almost twice uh, more uh, than uh, the white population. Uh, it means, uh, you know, the right to education, uh, being educated in a way uh, that is uh, uh, enables us to play full citizenship roles and to do it on an equal basis and for that to be available to all of us, not just a few of us. Um, so these are very fundamental rights, fundamental to being able to um, do what we do as, as, as a, a major, uh, you know, uh, a major uh, role of political rights, which is to vote. Uh, but many people cannot and don't vote uh, because they're being held back by a lack of uh, economic rights. They're being held back by poverty and all that poverty uh, means. So, yes, I agree with uh, Michelle Alexander. Absolutely. And when Dr. King embraced this approach of calling not just for civil rights, but also economic rights as well, many white liberals in the North abandoned him and turned on him. I'm wondering if you see a shift at all uh, in the many decades since and what work has to be done in that, in that area, especially you know, amongst white liberals to you know, push forward a, a more uh, impactful movement. Well, let me say I was um, heartened 
by the um, uh, the broad demographics uh, that were on display in the protests uh, around the country. Um, and I hope that um, it is really an answer to your question. I hope that it really means that we've got many more people with us uh, this time around. You have uh, family members of black victim of black victims of police violence. Uh, the the brother and son of George Floyd, uh, the mother of Breonna Taylor, the mother of Philando Castile, and the mother of Michael Brown. Can you comment on the significance of them signing on to this letter, this call for the UN to investigate racism in the U.S.? Well, I certainly think it's very important. I think that uh, uh, given the situation, we would have been hard pressed to go forward without having uh, them with us. Uh, but at the same time, they were very enthusiastic uh, on uh, in their own minds about uh, going international uh, with uh, this uh, struggle and they wanted to make an appeal, especially the, the, the family of, of George Floyd, to make an appeal to the international uh, community and, you know, reached out to uh, some of us who have been known to have made our careers um, in that area uh, to play a part in helping them do that. And finally, there is a growing call to defund the police. Uh, for many people, that means not spending as much money as we do on police budgets and putting that money into communities and social services. For police unions who push back on that and say that to take money away from us would be to take away resources that are provided to help victims of things like domestic violence. What is your response to that? Well, first of all, I would say that the police should not be trying to deal with domestic violence. Uh, they're not really trained uh, to do that. Uh, and I'd rather see putting the money into some uh, professionals that are trained to do that. Um, I think that, you know, there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of, I don't know if I'd call it fat, but look, every time that the police kill uh, an innocent uh, person, uh, even if the policeman is not, uh, you know, brought up on criminal charges, uh, there are civil suits against the police that are um, a consequence. And uh, they generally um, end in quite substantial sums having to be paid out of uh, government coffers. Why should we pay for that? Um, you know, when I go out on the street and somebody's dealing with something like, you know, a shop owner, uh, well, in this case, Floyd, a shop owner thinks that Floyd might have, have given them a, a bonus, a bogus $20 bill. Well, first of all, why should 10 police respond to that? Um, you know, I mean, what, uh, what this has cost already the Minneapolis police uh, is so far 
out of proportion to the $20 that, that was the trigger uh, to uh, this whole set of events. It's crazy. You know, in the meantime, uh, public schools are uh, dying for lack of support. Uh, yes, I think there ought to be substantial rethought about the budgets of the police as they are. But I also support the call that we all take a breath here and uh, reimagine what policing should be like in a democratic state. Um, and I think that, you know, it's both of these that are at the bottom of the call for uh, defunding the police. You know, nobody's saying that, uh, you know, if uh, that there will not be police. Uh, I think there are lots of wishes that there are not police as we have known them so far. And I agree with that. Gay McDougal, co-drafter of the letter uh, signed by relatives of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Philando Castile, Michael Brown, asking the UN to investigate racism and police abuses in the US. Former member of the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. Thank you very much. Thank you.